Second Peter chapter two. He got away with it. He got away with it. There have been many stories, or maybe people even in your own life, that you could say, wait a minute, they actually got away with it. And that's what it seems like. Kind of irks you, though, doesn't it? They shouldn't have gotten away with it. (laughs) Or maybe it was you. (laughs) Then you were glad. Mom never found out who broke the lamp. It could have been any one of the brothers. It could have been the dog. Maybe it was the chickens that just happened to get into the house that day. But I got away with it, right? There's a story told of, uh, actually a news story, of one criminal, Benny Wint. 1989, he had already been charged, I believe, on narcotics, possession, use, all of that. And he was about to be sentenced, but he decided to go on a short vacation before all of that. So he went down to Daytona Beach with his fiance, and there they are at the beach, and he decides to go swimming, and poor Benny never returned. He drowned. So he got away with it, right? Oh, wait. 20 years later, two decades, Benny is driving in North Carolina, gets pulled over by a state trooper, and gives a false name. They can't find the name anywhere in the database. He's really nervous. They're saying, wait a minute, something's wrong with this guy. They eventually find out he faked his own death to try to get away with it. And here, 20 years later, he's been living under that pressure, of course, running from the law, trying not to get caught. He thought he got away with it. A lot of people thought he got away with it. Apparently, he left a wife or a kid behind and started a whole new life, you know, just try to reset. But Benny didn't get away with it. When we look at our world today, we see a lot of bad stuff going on. Would you agree? <laughs> it doesn't take very far. You don't have to look very far. You don't have to watch the news too long. You don't have to scroll too far on your Facebook feed to say, man, these people, it seems like they're getting away with it. And then our hearts turn, and we, we might even start doing this. We start questioning God, right? Saying, God, why aren't you doing anything about this? God, we know that you set the standard, that you are right. You say what is just. You get to call sin, sin. And, and we submit to that, and we want to follow you. We want to obey you. And we look around, and it seems like the wicked, they just, they're doing just fine, right? They keep on getting richer. Well, when we come to our passage here, we looked at last week the false teacher's influence. Remember Peter here in his final words that he's written in 2 Peter, he has this theme, this, this, this idea that he wants us all to get. He wants us to grow in grace. So he started off his, his book saying that we all have the same standing before God. We all have a like precious faith before God. So we have salvation. And then in that, God has given us everything that we need as believers for life and for godliness. In other words, we have everything we need right now to live the Christian life. And then he goes through a portrait, remember, of Christ's likeness, of what it looks like to be growing, to grow in Christ's likeness, what it looks like to grow in grace. 
And then he ends chapter 1 with talking about the certain word of God. In other words, God has given us his word, and it is sure, and it is certain, and we can know him through it. And in the midst of all that growing in grace and knowing that God's word is true, he spends all of chapter 2 dealing with false teachers. And why does he do that? It's because of this idea. It seems like there are people that are getting away with it, that God has not appropriately judged. And if we're going to grow in grace, we have to deal with that issue because we're trying to do what's right, and yet others are not. And so Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 10. And Peter tells us that the false teachers, their demise is certain. In other words, judgment day is coming. In other words, they ain't going to get away with it. That God is just, and he knows how to both judge the wicked and deliver the righteous. So today we're going to look at the false teacher's certain demise that God has rightly judged and God will rightly save. So the false teacher's certain demise, that they aren't going to get away with it. Would you read together with me 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, and we'll read through verse 10. 2 Peter 2, beginning in verse 10. Four. It says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds." The Lord knoweth how to deliver the ungodly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. In this section, Peter starts with this if statement. And what he's going to do then in verses 4 through 8 is look back on history. And he's going to answer this question, what has God done with false teachers and people who have rejected God's authority? What has God done? And he gives in this, this if statement, or you could say for, or since, since God has already done this. And he gives four examples. He gives the example of the angels. And we'll get into that in a little bit of what group that is. The angels that sinned. And then in verse 5, he gives the example of Noah. Noah and the old world or the pre-flood world. Then he gives the example of two cities, two well-known cities in the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he gives the example, tied again with that, of Lot. So he gives these four examples, the angels, Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot, and saying in each of those instances, 
What has God done? Has he rightly judged the wicked and has he delivered the righteous? Has God done that? Has God rightly judged? And he says, since. Notice how each verse starts. And, 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 and. In other words, he's building an argument or a case that look what God has done over and over and over. This is who God is and this is what he's done. So what has God done? Well, we'll start with the angels. Notice there in verse 4, it says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So the question is, who are these angels and what was their sin? Well, this angels, if you look at it, you'd, you'd first think, well, the angels that sinned, what do we know about angels? Well, God gives us a limited peek behind the curtain, right? But he doesn't tell us everything about the spiritual world. And so what do people do? Well, they like to make up a lot of things about the spiritual world that we haven't seen. And we have to protect ourselves against that because God, on purpose, has decided not to reveal everything to us. But we do know that angels, and we do know that fallen angels, are real beings. We sometimes would call them demons or demonic as well, the fallen angel side of them. So when did the angels sin? Well, we know from other passages that Satan, right, he rebelled against God. And Jesus himself says in Luke 10 how he saw Satan cast out of heaven like lightning. In other words, God threw him out of heaven because of Satan's sin. And who was Satan? Well, he was a mighty and powerful angel. And what was his sin? Well, from other passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel, we look at that and we, we would say maybe, we could boil it down to pride or wanting to know or be like God in a way that was not right. In other words, it wasn't reflecting Christ's likeness. It was instead trying to usurp authority over God. And so God cast him out. And with that, what happened? A third of the angels went with him. How many is a third of the angels? We have no idea. How many angels are there? We don't know. And so we can, we can sit all day and ask some of these questions, but God has said, no, that, that curtain is closed. But the point still remains the same. Angels sinned, God punished them. But is that what he's talking about? Well, in verse 4 here, he goes on to say a past tense of what has already happened. He said, they have already been cast down into hell. Now, of all, are all the angels currently been cast into hell? Whatever that is, we'll get into it in a second. Are they there? And we'd say, no. Satan and some of his angels still have some control over this earth. There's the prince of the power of the air. And there are fallen angels or demons that even in Christ's time that he cast out, you know, several times of people. So I don't believe, although you could take it away, that it's talking about that very first instance when God cast everyone out. Well, what was another time that angels sinned? Well, it's helpful to see that he cast them down into hell and define some of these terms real quickly. This, this word hell here, there's actually several different words used in the Old and New Testament for this idea of hell. It could be grave or it could be a holding place. Here, this word is only used once in our entire Bible. And it's actually a word borrowed from Greek mythology. And Peter did that because the people, the readers of his day, would have an idea of what this word meant. And the Greek word tartarus, the only time it's mentioned is here in the New Testament. It's from Greek mythology, and it's a place that the Greeks would say was, was kind of a lower level 
of hell that was a punishment specifically reserved for demons or for these fallen angels. And so it has that idea or flavor uh, to it. And so what Peter is saying is there's a certain group of angels that have already been put in that holding place. They've already been put in that holding place. Well, what was their sin? Well, if it wasn't the initial fall from heaven, if you want to look at it that way, there are other clues. And, and we can't be 100% dogmatic on all of these things, but there are other clues that give us some insight to that. Jude is one of them. As, you've, as I've mentioned before, Jude is a, excuse me, a parallel passage or document to 2 Peter, especially chapter 2. So if you turn over to Jude, verse 6, it actually gives some of the same thought and idea Where Jude says in Jude 1, verse 6, And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. So he's talking about a time when the angels left their own habitation. He hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto judgment of the great day. So these are angels that have left their habitation. And then later on in verse 14, Jude actually quotes a book that's not in our Bibles, but it's a historical document that was written at his time that he pulled from and that believed this part. And it says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment. And so what Jude is doing is quoting from First Enoch, a document. And if you look at First Enoch, it's actually talking about angels as well in there and some of their their power, and what they've done. And later on in that book, it also ties it to an instance that happens in Genesis chapter 6. And the first part of Genesis 6, it's, it's, it's actually right before Noah and the flood. And in Genesis 6, it says the sons of God came and inhabited the children of men. And what does that exactly mean? We're not exactly sure, but it seems like Either angels came down or demons possessed certain men or rulers and they married women and had children through that and God was displeased with them on that because they had left their habitation as Jude 6 says. And so in some ways, this group of angels had done something even above and beyond in a sense, the original casting out of heaven is what it looks like, it appears to be. And so God he judged them, and what did he do? He cast them into this hell, this place for demons, and delivered them into the chains of darkness. This idea of being delivered to the chains of darkness, that they're held in a pit or a place that is, is secure, and there's no way out of it. To do what? To be reserved unto judgment. And so these angels are being held because at a future time, remember what happens? Death and hell gave up those dead, and they were cast into the lake of fire. There's still a future judgment coming that God has reserved for who? For the devil and his angels, for Satan and his angels. So that may be what Peter is talking about here. Either way, what does it mean? It means that there were angels that rebelled against God. They sinned. They try to absorb God's authority and their own rightful place that God had given them. And what did God do to them? He said, I've already had enough. There's, there's no chance for any of repentance or forgiveness for them. 
and they have been put in this holding place to be judged at a later date. In other words, they're already being judged, and God will fully judge them too. Now, why would God do that with angels? In other words, he didn't offer a way for them to get out. Well, think about angels. Where were they? They're in heaven, the presence of God. They got to see it all. They were in God's glory, and they still chose to rebel. So God is saying, no, even powerful angels that I've created, that I created to glorify me, even those in heaven that were cast out, God is saying, I'm still judging and punishing them. So did they get away with it? Are they going to get away with it? And God is saying, no. No, they are not. So that's, that's the angels. There's a lot more we could dive in there, but God, again, hasn't opened the curtain fully for us to know. But we do know this. God has judged these angels, and rightly so. Then he moves on to the next person under God rightly judging. He, he moves on to Noah and the pre-world flood. Notice in verse 5 it says, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person. Why was Noah the eighth person? Well, remember there were seven others with him, his wife, then the three sons and their three daughters. So he was the eighth or the last person on the ark, the boat. And who was he? A preacher of righteousness. And what did God do? Bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Go back to Genesis chapter 6, if you would, please, just to see what God has done here. Genesis chapter 6. And in Genesis 6, in verse 5, it says, And God saw, in other words, God was well aware. He knew and he knows what's going on. We'll see that later in our passage in 2 Peter 2. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. How bad was it? It was pretty bad. It was really bad. Every thought, every imagination, every desire of the heart, devoid of God, doing my own thing. And here is Noah in the midst of this. If you're Noah, you're one of eight, you're the preacher of righteousness. In Noah's mind, does it look like they're getting away with it? These people are rejecting God. But God saw Verse 6, and it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. God was sad. This is not what I created man to be or to do, and yet they have totally rejected me. Verse 7, and the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing, the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me. That I have made them. But notice verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What a sweet statement. If you're the last man standing, literally, (laughs) would it be said of you? Would it be said of me? Fill in the blank. Found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And why was that? Well, we see back here in Second Peter, it's because Noah 
was a preacher of righteousness. In other words, his life and what he lived and what he said was based on the faith and an action in God. So what did God do with all the other men and beasts and everything else? He sent a worldwide flood. And notice in Genesis, it's saying it's every living thing that was on the face of the earth. Now we see evidences of that today, don't we? Why is Kansas, where I grew up, why are there fossils in the middle of a wheat field, you know? (laughs) It's obviously because of the millions of... No, it's because God sent a flood. And all of that is a reminder, and even the rainbow is a promise that God won't judge the earth again with a flood. But I have bad news, as we'll get in a little bit. He is going to judge it. This time, though, it's going to be fire. So maybe you'll want the flood, right? (laughs) So God, though, still has judged. But notice, he also saves, we see in the life of Noah, he saves the righteous. He has rescued or saved the righteous. So that's the example of the angels, the example of Noah. And then Peter, again, gives the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 6. It says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. What was Sodom and Gomorrah known for? Or, this is a hot debate today. What was Sodom and Gomorrah's sin? Well, people want to redefine the Bible. Ezekiel actually tells us their sin. Actually, I should say it this way. It tells us one of their sins. It says they were proud and filled up with themselves And they neglected the widow and the children. So that was their only sin. No. There's a whole list of sins that God gives. In Jude, if you look at verse 7 of Jude, it says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude makes it clear That it's also their immorality. Not just man and woman, but man-man as well. And you see that played out in the story in Genesis chapter 13. And then also 19, where it's fully laid out. That the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're saying, I'm going to fulfill my own desires and do what I want to do, throwing off all restraints. And if you look at the story of Lot and Sodom, Remember how Lot is in the middle of all that, and he has angelic messengers that God has sent to rescue him, and yet men are pounding on the door to do unspeakable acts, and God is saying that is wicked, that is wrong, and yet they are going headlong into that. Their own desires, their own immoral fantasies, their own lusts, and God is saying, no, So what did God do with Sodom and Gomorrah? Does this this message preach well in today's culture? God sent fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. He sent fire and sulfur. Where are Sodom and Gomorrah located? Because God completely wiped it out. Well, today, archaeologists have not found an exact spot, but they would say... It's either on the side of the Dead Sea, but my personal belief is it's right in the middle of the Dead Sea. And you know what you find in the middle of the Dead Sea? A lot of salt. (laughs) Lot's wife probably just dissolved right there. You also find, you find a lot of 
ash and sulfur, things that would be there from, from fire and sulfur raining down from heaven. If you look at that parable passage in Jude, as we've already read, there was actually people at the time of Jude's time and of Peter's time, there are historical documents that we have that even Sodom and Gomorrah, you come all the way to the New Testament period, even then there was still smoke rising from that area in the Dead Sea where Sodom and Gomorrah was. Let me ask you, what lives in the Dead Sea today? What grows in the Dead Sea today? Nothing. That is still a reminder today that God is just and God judges sin. And so it's giving us that example that God, he can take care of things. Now, I know this is a little bit heavy, and it seems, wait a minute, that God is, you know, angry and unloving, right, because he's done all this. We'll get to the gospel in a little bit that shows not at all, but what I want all of us to understand is that even in our yearning for justice to be, to take place right now, right, we want right things to happen. We don't want people to get away with it. It's not like it's going under God's nose and God doesn't know. It's not like it's, you know, they're getting away with it and God doesn't care. Oh, God knows. Oh, God very much cares. And God very much is the one who has the authority as the creator, as the great eternal God, to give what is right, to give what is true. And so don't see God's delaying of justice right now as God doesn't care. Instead, as we'll see, God's delaying right now is actually because of his loving, patient, long-suffering towards us. That he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so don't see God's delayment of justice as injustice. It's actually God's kindness. But there is a point, and there has been points in the past where God says, enough is enough. Flood, fire and sulfur, it's a big deal. God takes it seriously. God takes sin seriously. So we can't just snub our noses at God, or as some false teachers are doing today, say, I'm going to reinterpret what the Bible actually says. You have to take the words for what they are and say, Lord, I'm going to believe you, trust you, and follow you by faith. So there's an example of the angels. They didn't even get away with it. Noah, the whole world didn't get away with it. Sodom and Gomorrah, very wicked people, they didn't get away with it. But he also gives us this example of Lot. The example of Lot in verse 7, notice what it says, and delivered just Lot. Wait a minute. Just Lot? Lot was just? Do you remember the story of Lot? You know, Abraham, nephew Lot, they come to this valley, and Abraham says, you know, our herdsmen are fighting. We're not getting along. Lot, you can have first dibs on whatever land you want. And if you go that way, I'll go this way. And if you go this way, I'll go that way. And it'll be fine. And we'll, we'll take our pick of, pick of the land. And what does Lot do? He looks up and he sees the fertile plains that is now the Dead Sea. <laughs> that is now, you know, just salt. But he sees this and he sees Sodom and Gomorrah. And he knows, even at that time, that there's wickedness there. But he says, because of the, the good stuff there, that's where I'm going to be. And then, if, if you go through the story of Lot, 
you know, when those, those men come knocking on his door, he does things that as a father, you think I would never do that. And then even after God rescues him, he does things that you say, wait, that is clearly against God's law. It's clearly against God, what God wants. And yet it calls him just Lot. And what happened with just Lot? Well, he was vexed. He was really tormented with the filthy conversation of the wicked, the filthy lifestyle of the wicked. Are any of you, though, in that situation, and it may not even be because of your choosing, it may just be the people you work with, the people you're around, the world that you have to live in, do you ever get tormented, in a sense, by all the wickedness that you see going on around you? And that's where Lot is at. But Lot knew this. He knew the one true God. He knew who God was. And God, in his mercy and grace, will see, saved him. Both like physically, but also spiritually. Genesis 19 lays out the whole destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But I just want to highlight one verse in Genesis 19. It's verse 16. Lot, he seems like a, a double-minded guy. He's here in the middle, and then he, he's still waffling, and the angels are saying, you've got to get out of here. Judgment's coming. You've got to go. And uh, Lot went, and he told his son-in-laws, hey, we've got to get out, but they thought he was joking. In other words, he didn't even have enough of a testimony that they would believe him on that. But, but the Lord still sent these angels to rescue him. And it says in verse 16 of Genesis 19, and while he, that is Lot, lingered, the men lay hold on his hand, that's the angels, the messengers, and the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, and the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. What happened? These angels had to physically grab Lot and his wife and his two daughters and pull them out of the city, pull them out of the righteous wrath of God's coming destruction, even though they knew it was coming. And what does it say about the Lord in that? It says the Lord was merciful unto him. Has the Lord ever been merciful to you by dragging you, kicking and screaming as you may be, either to repentance or righteousness or his way? Isn't God gracious in doing that? I know he's done that in my life. In other words, there's maybe an area of sin that you say, oh, it's not, it's not that big a deal. Or, or maybe there's, there's a failure and you say, you know, I could, I could never get over this. And yet God, like Lot, being merciful, grabs you and says, since you're my child, even though you've, met, you've done messed up, I'm not going to let you get away with that. And he actually drags us <laughs> out of the way of his destruction. Maybe it's a destructive path in life and into a rightful place. So God, really the story of Lot is, in some sense, much more a story of, of God's mercy and gracious, graciousness, even with a righteous man, as verse 8 says, for that righteous man, that's Lot, dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. It grated against him, yet God delivered him. Are there things that grate against you today? I won't ask because I don't want you to share them on Facebook. No, I'm kidding. We can all comment on Facebook or Twitter or, or even talk about it amongst ourselves. That really, you know, irritates me or, gr or grinds me or rubs me the wrong way because of all these people and the sin and, and, and the lies that they're getting away with. 
But Peter is saying, God has rightly judged. He's judged the wicked, and he has delivered the righteous. And it's because of his mercy. And so because of that, then he turns to, in verses 9 and 10, that God will rightly save. In other words, there's hope for us too, right now and in the future, because God will rightly save. So God has rightly judged, God will rightly save. Verse 9, the godly are rescued. It says, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Start with that first phrase, the Lord knoweth. Several times in Second in Peter here, we've already had that phrase of knowledge, right? To grow in grace, to grow in the knowledge of our Lord, to know God. And, and that knowledge, it's talking about an ex, a, a relational and experiential knowledge. Well, here Peter actually uses a slightly different word for knowledge or to know. It, it has the idea here of being aware, of being well acquainted with, of actually seeing someone physically, seeing where they're at. And so it, when it says the Lord knoweth, it means that God isn't blind to what's going on in the righteous person's life. God is not blissfully unaware. As the psalmist said, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. Whereas I believe Second Chronicles, the eyes of the Lord walk to and fro throughout the earth. And what is he looking for? He's looking for a person, a man whose heart is right before God. So if you're a righteous or an upright person because of what God has done in your life and what you are trying to do and live for, for God, Peter is saying here that God has not ignored the vexation that you're experiencing by wicked people. God is well aware of where you're at. God sees and he knows. And so even in the greatest trial, the deepest struggle, the harshest persecution, whatever it may be, Peter says here in verse 9, the Lord knoweth. The Lord is aware. The Lord sees. The Lord is well acquainted with you. And then Peter goes on to say, the Lord knoweth how to deliver. That word deliver is the idea of rescuing or saving. Samantha and I were talking recently that soon our boys will need to take swimming lessons at some point. She's like, I never took swimming lessons. If my son is out there and I see that he's drowning, what can I do about it? Pretty much nothing, right? And why is that? Because to be a lifeguard, and if you're going to have a lifeguard at a pool, don't you want them to know how to deliver? <laughs> They're not just going to put the arm floaties on and the suntan and the whistle. That's not what makes you a lifeguard, at least not a good lifeguard, right? What makes you a good lifeguard? Training. First of all, you actually know how to swim yourself, right? You got to have that. And then you have to know how to rescue. And that's a whole nother level because from what I've heard, I've never taken life uh, uh, you know, lifeguard training classes, but from what I've heard is that the drowning person is not there to help you when you are saving them. In fact, they're very much 
the, the potential is there that they could take you down with them in a drowning situation. So you have to know how to deliver, rescue, save. That word deliver, it also makes me think of a midwife or a doctor when it comes to delivering a baby. As a first-time dad, did I know anything about that? Absolutely not. I was there for emotional support, right? But I didn't, want to be the, I didn't want to be the only one there, I should say, when it came to actually delivering the baby. Why? Because there's a lot of things I, I didn't know. So what do you want? You want someone that knows how to deliver, how to rescue. So the Lord is well aware of the righteous and their plight and the vexation. But not only that, he knows how. He is well acquainted. You can't say that the Lord is trained because he's always known. But he knows how to deliver, to rescue the righteous person. And we've seen that here in Peter's life. I think that, that comes even more to the forefront because did Peter himself experience any persecution? Absolutely. He experienced great persecution. Now, we talked about it in the introduction of this book. The way that church history says that Peter died was by crucifixion. And he didn't feel worthy to be crucified right side up, so Peter was crucified upside down. Now, let me ask you, Peter's writing this, obviously, before his death. Does the Lord know how to deliver Peter from that? Wait a minute. He died. He died. And yet, Peter is saying confidently, the Lord knows how to deliver. In other words, even if it's not in this life, even if the, the unjust somehow defeat or persecute or take the life of the righteous as is happening in our world even today. There is martyrdom going on and, and persecution. Peter himself experienced that, but he could still boldly say God knows how to deliver because really there's ultimate delivery. The, real, the ultimate delivery is we're all going to rise again and God is the one who's going to make things right in the end. That's why I feel bad in some ways for poor Lazarus up in Abraham's bosom, whatever that looked like. And then he hears this voice while he's up in heaven or something. What, what does that look like? Lazarus, come forth. And he's like, no. And he gets pulled all the way back down. And here he's stumbling out and he smells really bad. But my part is he has to die twice. He has to go through and die again. So, you know, you think he experienced deliverance. Well, yes, in a way he did. But yet he had experienced physical death again, as we all will. But ultimately... God rescues and saves who? Everyone who believes. What a precious and sweet promise. That whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall be rescued. That's what God gives. So the Lord knoweth how to deliver, and he says the godly. Talking even of this life, who are the godly? Well, we looked at godliness in verse 1, as, as being someone who is actually thinking about God in everything they do. In other words, the actions and choices and desires, you have a God filter on. In other words, you don't just flippantly say, I'm going to do this or do that. You're actually asking the question, what does God think about this? What does God want in this? And you're doing that with every aspect of your life. And that, that's a continual grow in grace type of thing, Right? That's a continual lifelong type of thing. Well, this word here is, is actually slightly different. Again, it's, it's more specific. It, it, it really just has the word, the idea of devoutness. Cornelius in Acts 10, 
was called a devout person who feared the Lord and was seeking and wanting to know the truth. And so, of course, God sent him who? Peter, actually, to give him the gospel of the Messiah. And so the godly is, is the devout person, the one who fears the Lord. It has those ideas tied up into it. So it asks this question, what does it mean to fear the Lord? And are you, am I, fearing the Lord? I like this definition of fearing the Lord, of being devout. It simply means taking God seriously. Taking God seriously. You actually take him at his word, you believe him, and you actually do it. Who do you take seriously in life? Did, uh, did you ever have to take your dad seriously? In other words, <laughs> he said, this is what I'm going to do because you have done thus and so. And you could tell by the tone of his voice and the expression of his eyebrows that he was serious. Right? And you knew that he had the power to do what he said he was going to do. And so what did that motivate you? This is very simple motivation. The next time, the next time he told you to do something, there was motivation there to do it. Well, God, he, it's not just the fear of the Lord as in I'm trembling, even though that's part of it. It's also realizing all the character of God in his goodness and saying, that's who I'm going to follow. So the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly. And he says, out of temptations. This idea of temptations, I believe, encompasses all that there is with temptations. Trials, testings, temptation. In other words, it reflects both the positive and the negative side. The, the, the negative side may be temptations to sin. The positive, we don't say this is positive, but the trials of life that are really outside of our control. In other words, it's not a sin that, is, that we're being tempted to do, but it's just life sometimes stinks, right? You'd agree with that. So it could be a trial of health that someone's going through. It could be a trial of persecution. And I believe definitely that's what Peter has here in mind, that there are people that are vexing you. Or it could be a temptation as well. In other words, a desire to pull you away from God and to sin. This, this is the same word that is used in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptations, but deliver us from evil. So in all of this, even when it comes with our spiritual walk, God is saying, you, right now, as a believer, as someone who is fearing the Lord, who is devout, who is godly, God knows how to help you to rescue you from temptation, from the trial. And don't trials often bring temptations to doubt God? to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's love and care, God says, I know how to rescue you. And even in the midst of all that, God also says, I know how to make sure the unrighteous are punished. So the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation, and he also knows how to punish the unrighteous. Notice the last part of verse 9. It says, And to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. It's like he's flipping the coin over, and, and it's, it's a parallel thought here. That the Lord knows. What does he know? He knows how to deliver, but he also knows how to reserve. 
What is this word reserve? It has the same idea of observing, watching, and keeping. So just like God knows and he sees all the righteous, he also observes and knows everything about the wicked or the unjust as well. And it's not out of his sight. And so he's, he's saying even that the Lord knows. He knows the unjust. These are the unrighteous, the wicked. So it brings this question right now. Are you just? Are you right? Some people think this is how it works in God's eyes. I know I done some, I've done some unjust things, some bad things, but I've done some good things too, right? And if I just do enough good things, it'll outweigh those bad things. Or some people say, I'm a pretty good person, right? I'm a pretty good person, pretty good. So I've, I've done some good things, and I, I've done the right things. You know, I've gone to church. I even read my Bible. I've been baptized. I pray. But Peter, as we've seen, he's saying that's not what makes you just. And why not? Well, I don't, I don't know about you, but I know my, my, if, if you really take a look at your heart and your actions and your thoughts, my good deeds works never outweigh my bad. Like I know my own, my own flesh my own sin. There's no way. And then on top of that, God is holy and perfect and just. And and that standard is not one sin. So he who is guilty of, of one trespass is guilty of all. And so there's no way we can be perfect or just. And that's where the beauty of the gospel comes in yet and shines brightly. As we talked about that, Jesus Christ the perfect, sinless Son of God, perfectly just, never sinned, never did anything wrong, obeyed and fulfilled God's law perfectly. Is he just in God's eyes? Absolutely. Is he righteous in God's eyes? Yes. And as fully God and fully man, only Jesus Christ could be the substitution, could take our place to be just. And that's when it comes to whosoever believes actually then receives his righteousness, his justice. And that's why we call it justification. That we're declared righteous, that we have Christ's robes of righteousness, and it's not our own. So it comes back to this question, are you just? And it's only those who have placed their faith in Christ. And if you're unjust, notice what it goes on to say. To reserve the unjust that God's watching He knows what's going on, and at a future time unto the day of judgment to be punished. Judgment day is coming. Punishment is coming. God will hold the unjust, the unrighteous, accountable. And let me tell you, you do not want to be accountable for your own sin. Because the judgment against an infinite, almighty, all-knowing, eternal God is eternal punishment in a place that Jesus himself calls the lake of fire where the worm never dies. And that is righteous and that is just because God can't allow one sin and even one sin against a holy, infinite God deserves an eternal punishment. 
So verse 10 then closes our passage here and gives our focus and says, are, these any are any of these things characteristics in my life? Because these are the characteristics of the unjust. And I don't want to be the unjust. And I don't want to walk after their way and live their life. Notice verse 10, it says, but chiefly them that walk after the flesh. Life is about me. And in the lust of uncleanness, I want my desires, not God's desires. And despise government, or really that word government is lordship. They despise God or Jesus, the Lord, being Lord even over them. In other words, you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do my own thing. Presumptuous are they. Presumptuous has the idea of pride, boldness, and daring. Don't do that. I'm going to do it anyways. God's going to judge you for that. I don't care. I'm going to live life my way. Self-willed. Ooh, that sometimes hits homes. It simply means self-pleasing. I'm doing what I want to do without thought of anyone or anything else. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. And I really think that's talking about angelic powers, even demonic powers, that they don't really care about the spiritual realm. They'll even make light or fun of it, thinking that eh, I have either more power over that. It's a very flippant attitude, a blasphemous attitude towards spiritual things. So as we come to the end, there's, there's things both that God wants us to believe, but also check our own hearts about. He wants us to know and be assured that he has judged in the past and he will make all things right and judge in the future. We can have confidence in that. So even in the midst of our being vexed and even tormented by the sin that's going on around us, God says, I'm going to make all things right. You don't have to worry about that part. Obviously, God still calls us to be light and salt in this world and to, to spread the news of the gospel. But God also is warning us that we should not live or walk or continue in the same pattern of life as the unjust. In other words, that as believers, if you're a believer today, that should not be your lifestyle. It should not be one that walks after the flesh, that despises the authority of God, that is, presum that is prideful, that is self-pleasing. In other words, it's not about us. It's about God. So are you going to get away with it? Is anyone going to get away with it? Either you're behind the blood of Christ or God, he knows all and will judge accordingly. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, there's no better day than today. And if you do know God as your Savior, there's no better day than today to say, Lord, I want to live a life that's about you, not me.